You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. No matter how many conversations I have with artists, no matter how many episodes this podcast releases, I'm amazed at the variety of insights and lessons that each person brings to these discussions. But in this episode, I think we hit upon one of the biggest, if not the biggest, obstacle that holds us back as actors and creatives, and that is fear. Being afraid of vulnerability, or not making enough money, or not being cast, or simply not being good enough. This fear is the cause of our self-doubt and uncertainty, and it can hold us back or even paralyze us from moving forward. Today I'm talking with someone who knows all too well what fear can do to us. He has lived it as an artist himself and has even written a book to help us navigate the ins and outs of this business. Hello, my name is David Dean Botrell. I'm originally from Louisa, Kentucky. I currently live in Los Angeles and in New York. I split my time. I'm an actor and a writer, and I've also done some directing and some producing and some teaching. David joins me to talk about three specific examples of fear. One stems from his upbringing and the strange reaction his family had to success. We also discussed that book he wrote and how completely inadequate he felt while writing it. And we talk about his desire to imitate and be someone else rather than understand or even accept his own unique talents. When I started doing it, it was a miserable experience because I felt like a total fraud because there was really not much of me being utilized in that performance. It was me trying to imitate this other actor who I was not. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, a top 25 theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver Jones, an actor and singer, talking with fellow creatives each week as they bring us three stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can sign up for the Win Me newsletter and offer generous support of this podcast. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, David. It is so good to meet you and to have you on the podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you and I may know each other from auditions. It's, it's amazing what a small little world these actors are. So we probably passed each other. But where we really connected was through After Forever, which was yes. produced and, and, and starring Kevin Spiritus. And how long have you known him or worked with him? Um, I met Kevin actually years ago. We were both on a panel uh, in Los Angeles. And I can't remember what organization or even what the topic of the panel was, because I was on a lot of panels in those days, but I was uh, seated next to Kevin and we hit it off. And, uh, and that's where we first met was there. And then, uh, I ran into him here and there, like we do in this world of auditions and so forth. And then when I moved back to New York in 2016, I got the call actually to, if I wanted to be part of after forever. And I jumped on it because everybody involved was so great. And, Michael, who was the co-writer, was a you know an acquaintance of mine as well, and um, it just seemed like such a fun project, and I'd, I'd never seen anything quite like it before. Um, and of course, it's been very successful. It's got it's won I think six Emmys right, so far. Right. Yeah, it's been critically acclaimed and award winning. 
Yeah, it's one of those like little under the radar things because it's a digital series. And so they do give Emmys for digital series, but they they give them out like during the daytime Emmy Awards. And so not a lot of people know that we won all those Emmys, but we did and we deserve them because it's a really nice show. And I think what After Forever showcases, and, and it's something that you and Kevin share in common, is this need to not only be an actor, but then progress and transition to other forms of producing or writing or directing and, and the different ways that we can express ourselves creatively. And the first story that uh, you brought to me that you wanted to talk about is that it took you a while to realize that one of the things that was holding you back was a fear of success, a, a fear of being found out as a fraud. And and you really came to realize this and, and that it stemmed from the fact that quote unquote success was not something that your family knew a lot about. So, so I'm guessing that you didn't feel a lot of support from your family. Oh my God. No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think, I'm not sure they still understand what it is I do. Um, but in those days when I was first becoming interested in it, uh, it was such a foreign thing. The idea of being an artist, you know, um, the, the, the general, well, you know, I come from, um, small town and a series of small towns. My family moved around quite a bit. Um, but, uh, it was in Kentucky in Eastern Kentucky, which is, um, you know, it's mostly, you know, it's, it's kind of a rural part of the country. And so, uh, people don't really think in those terms of like, you know, grandiose things or going to the big city and all that. They tend to sort of settle pretty close to where they were born and you work at, you know, whatever the factory or industry or, you know, whatever the options are in that town. And you, you build your dreams on a little, you know, uh, on a, on a more level playing field, I'll say. And so, uh, it was very foreign. Now, my family, God bless them, uh, not for nothing did I become uh, uh, an actor who was attracted to dramatic situations because there were a lot of problems. Uh, it was a big, big, big family, big, a lot, lot of relatives and a lot of alcohol issues and you know other issues and uh, not, not a lot of education in that part of the state and all that. So it was kind of a rough and tumble group. And so uh, I did notice that there was Anytime anybody sort of aspired to something to sort of get out of here or move to a bigger city or get a better kind of life for themselves, they were kind of, they were discouraged to, from doing it. Now, now, why do you think that was? Um, well, you know, I think it, it has to do with uh, kind of a fear of losing someone um, that, and I, I can tell you that, um, you know, when, when people do that, I have a cousin who actually lives here in New York as well, um, who became a psychologist and she and I are the only ones that I know of in that group of the family that ever sort of migrated away to a really, you know, large city and did uh, something out of the ordinary that most of the other family members didn't do. And in both ca- and she and I have both sort of, I don't know, you know, it's oddly there's kind of a prejudice against us that we somehow think we're better than everybody else in the family, you know, that we, that what what their lives were kind of not good enough for us. And we had to sort of, you know, uh, advance ourselves and go to college and do things like that. And it it's a funny thing. And I also think that they kind of fear that if you're out there in that world, that it's sort of dangerous. And, um, and again, you'll never want to come back and see them, that they'll never be, you know, good enough for you or interesting to you anymore. And it's a strange prejudice, but I know a lot of cultures that have this kind of crabs in a bucket thing. If you've ever heard that expression before. Right, right. That as one starts to climb up, they bring the others down. They bring it down. And I've seen this happen to, um, members of my family. And I, I have a nephew when he was a teenager, I saw, you know, him start to aim for things and I saw people kind of come down on him. And so I took him aside and I had a talk with him and I said, uh, 
you know, I just want to tell you something. Here's the deal. If you are, if you experience success in this family, uh, they're, they're not going to understand it. They're not going to know how to respond to it because they're used to kind of just kind of scraping along, you know? And, uh, but if you fail, they'll love you. They'll really embrace you. They'll give you all the love they've got because in that way, they understand that, that there are generations of that behavior. And so just be prepared to, if you leave here and start to carve out a new life, do not come to this well for that kind of water because you won't find it here. You're gonna have to find that from your friends and for whatever new family you create for yourself in this new place where you're going. So just don't don't be mad at them. They can't help it. It's just who they are. But don't expect them to get on board or ask you a lot of questions about it or um, or really acknowledge your victories because they don't really get that. They don't understand it. And I know that sounds weird. It does because you know supporting during success seems to make sense. It's like, oh, you're doing great, go go go. And support during failure can often be the harder thing to find. Not in my family. <laughs> <laughs> Not in my family. That is, that is a language they speak, and um, and I I know that sounds odd, and I think there's just this weird. And it's not just in that culture. It's in a lot of in a lot of cultures where there's not a lot of money and not a lot of opportunity. There's kind of a cycle that repeats itself over and over again, and it's kind of a whirlpool. And get out of the whirlpool, you need to be a pretty strong swimmer, because uh, you will not. They will they'll plant sort of seeds of doubt that you're not going to be able to make it out there. And I when even though I swam out of that, and when I swam out, I thought, oh well, that doesn't affect me anymore. That has no nothing to do with me now. And then I discovered that I'm cut from that cloth. So I did have to face that. And, and, and it was this fear of being a fraud. And even if I sort of got close to something and thought, oh, this is going to be, this kind of looks like a successful thing I'm going to get involved in here. My fear was that I could never repeat it. Um, that, 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 that was going to be, you know, and, and that's part of the fear of success that a lot of people deal with is, um, success is a very, that's a very stressful job being successful because, you know, it's not like, oh, you did it once. Let's see you do it again. And now do it again. Now do it again. And can you, you know, and uh, it's, it's a lot to kind of take on. If you frame it that way, if you frame it as, is this like, you know, live or die, you know, uh, either I'm a fraud or I'm a genius kind of way. But if you, if you come at it as a fun thing, if you like a challenge, if you like the puzzle, that has to be solved each time, you can get past that. that well, that's what I did anyway. I got past that, be thinking about, you know what? I enjoy the process of what I'm doing. It doesn't have to always be a huge moneymaker or it doesn't have to be my name across the marquee. I just want to enjoy my contribution. I want to do it well. Well, one thing I'm curious about, what was it that was different about you that made you want to look outside of Kentucky, outside of the family norms? Uh, well, for me, it was the fact that I was gay um, because there really was no place in those towns that I was growing up in that I could really be openly out, certainly not when I was a young person. And uh, maybe that's different now. It's a very different country we're living in now, uh, except if you live in Florida, I guess. Um, well, well, <laughs> and I still think that in some rural places, culturally, religiously, there there's still those pockets, uh, bubbles, yeah. so to speak, where it's hard to yeah. break out of. Yeah, there are places where it's kind of okay as long as you're subtle about it, you know, and you don't make a big deal of it. Uh, they don't kind of mind it so much. But I, I just at that time in my life, I thought I can't live like this. I don't want to live like this in this place. And I, 
also from the time I was a kid, I was also, I was always kind of fascinated with things that I saw um, in the movies and on TV. Like I was fascinated with New York city when I was like six years old and I knew about the empire state building. I knew about the statue of Liberty. And I, like, I just, I had a fascination for it. And I, I but uh, the biggest, biggest thing was, and in addition to being drawn to the things that were in cities was I just knew there was probably not going to be much of a life for me in this small place. And then I, and I wanted to go be in a place where I could live freely. And that's what I've done. So whenever you finally did leave and you finally started to pursue the acting, pursue what you wanted to do, at some point you found a success that you were kind of looking for. How did that first success feel? Were you immediately fearful of it or, or did you just be like, oh, this is a good feeling? Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think the first success I, I guess I really had, um, what, I mean, that was a measurable thing was I, I wound up getting into, uh, William Esper's acting class, which in the 1980s was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't take just anybody. And I, I managed to get in and I was a young guy and I lied about my age to get into that class <laughs> because he only took people like they were like 23 or 24 or something. And I was, I think I was 21 and I lied my way in. And, uh, and in that class, which I was both terrified of and also inspired by, because he was such a remarkable teacher. Um, I began to have, I, I thought I, I understood what he was asking me to do. And I just decided to trust him. So I just started jumping off of cliffs because he would ask me to do that. And I landed. Like I did not die when I jumped off the cliff. I actually landed and I thought, oh, you survived that. So therefore you can stick your neck out and you can try again. You can try to jump a little farther off that cliff next time. And I began to feel, that was the first, first place I began to feel it. He was encouraging to me. And um, that was the, the, the beginning of it was that. And then I was lucky enough to actually book my first professional job before I was actually out of Bill Esper's class. Like it was a two-year class. And he was very gracious and let me go and do that job. Yeah, because that's one of the things with, with his class. I had Terry Knickerbocker on earlier. And yeah. one of the Meisner things is to kind of set aside work and just work on the craft. Just right. train, just go to classes, and that's it. Right. It was very scary, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, I, you know, I called him up, and uh, and he was he was very, you know, oh, I don't I don't like this. I don't like the sound of this. You're right in the middle of your training, it's very important what we're doing and all that. And we were in the second year at the time, and and I I just I was just like shaking in my boots, but I said, uh, Bill, uh, I just want to be clear. I'm not actually asking for permission to do the job because I'm going to do it. <laughs> but what I'm asking for permission is to come back to class after I've done it. And he said, oh, I don't know, just call me when you get back. Call you and we'll, we'll decide then. Okay, and he let me back in and it all worked out. I was gone for two months. So in, in what ways has that fear of success stayed with you? You know, whether it showed up in auditions or work that you've done since then? I think we all, I shouldn't say that, I, I'm generalizing, but I, a lot of us, even really big famous people um, have a little bit of that fear of fraud, you know, living in them somewhere. And, and in a way, I, I can't remember who it was. I saw somebody interviewed now, but it was somebody, somebody really remarkable person. And, uh, and I remember they said, nobody understands the fear that even no matter where, you know, especially when you get to be where you're a really big deal and, and uh, the fear of the, the expectation that you've got to knock it out of the park again, you know, 
can't just be a little job that you're doing for a couple of bucks. <laughs> you gotta like deliver and uh, because all eyes are on you. And what was said was that fear, it's very much a part of it. Risk is a part of any kind of good work, I think. And so that's what I always try to think about it now is when it does come up, because it does, you know, I, I have, I have a couple of writing projects in front of me and oh my God, talk about terror. Um, I mean, talk about procrastination. It's like, oh, not today. Can't start it today. I'm not, I'm not talented enough to do it today, maybe tomorrow. Um, so it, but eventually, you know, it, it, you get enough going, you get enough sort of energy inside yourself. You think I, I must begin this. And then to begin you almost always find a way, you find a path, but it's the beginning part that always is, I think, stops a lot of people. Yeah, it's that journey of a thousand steps begins with the first step. It sure does. But you mentioned being a writer, and one of the things that you've written are these one-man shows that you've been yeah. able to perform, which is certainly much more personal. It's it's more true to who you are. And I imagine that kind of performance comes with with added pressure and self-doubt. I got to tell you that, you know, I, um, I was a screenwriter for a while in Los Angeles as well. And I, I, after 12 years of doing that, I backed away because I just, I became, it's a very hard job. It's a very difficult job. And I, after 12 years and one, only one movie produced and I was, I wrote many movies and was paid very well for my time, but we just weren't making movies. And I, and I, and I stepped away from it because it just felt disappointing all the time. And I, but I did start to do storytelling which was a new kind of writing for me. And out of the storytelling came the idea for this show. And it, the first time I did it, which is, it's called David Dean Botrell makes love a one man show. And it, 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 see, the first lap is free. And, uh, but it's a lot of very funny stories about all the, you know, calamities that I've experienced in my love life over the years, which have been many, many. Um, but, uh, I remember being backstage at the comedy central uh, theater in Los Angeles. And I suddenly was swept with this terror. I'm going to go out there and tell these stories that I really, you know, I may have told my friend about it or my best friend about it, but like on a stage for everybody, because I'm telling the truth. And I, I suddenly thought, oh my God, I will not be able to look any of these people in the eye after the show, because this is going to be so humiliating. And they're, they're going to see me in a much different light. And it, just the opposite happened. Um, when you speak the truth, and in my case, what I discovered about this kind of writing was you can start out to tell one story, and then if it's any if it's going to be any good, you're going to wind up telling a little more truth than you intended to tell. And that's what happened to me with that show. And then when I met those people afterwards, many of whom were my friends, uh, they they not only did they looked me in the eye, they embraced me and said, "Oh my God, I thought it was just me." I feel so much better about my life now. And it, it really made me realize the big difference in these two art forms is, you know, when you're training to be an actor, part of the goal is to sort of disappear into this fictitious person that somebody wrote. And when you're doing a one person show, like I do anyway, or storytelling, um, it's quite the opposite. You're actually trying to be transparent. You're trying to sort of allow people in and speak the truth to them. And the beauty of that is, uh, that I have found, is that when you really do that, people feel, um, how can I say it? They, they feel recognized. Like they, they feel like they're, they're, you're talking about them, even though you're talking about yourself. The more specific you are, oddly, the more universal it becomes. Well, yeah, because that's one of the big reasons that why I do this podcast is to help people not feel alone, to where oh, they yeah. can hear a similar story. And oh, yeah. 
And, and, and I think for all of us, there are these things that we guard, that we, that we keep inside. And all of a sudden, someone says something that we've been keeping inside. It's like we can open that little door and kind of let at least that part out. It's like, oh, there's one less thing I have to hold, one less burden I have to carry. Yes, yes. I have never in my career done anything that has the effect that this has, meaning that there are people usually waiting to talk to me after the show that I don't necessarily know. And they're not there to say, oh, we loved you on Boston Legal, or, or could I have your autograph, or can I take a picture, or oh, you were so hilarious tonight. They usually are waiting to tell me something out of their life. And people have told me some really heavy things over the years that I've done this show. And I, I feel very honored by that, that the show opened a channel for them to not be afraid to say that, whatever it might be, you know, um, because there's, there's nothing, you know, we're all human and I, we've all done a few things that we're embarrassed by. And we all do have done a few things we regret, you know, and we've all learned a little something along the way. And when we share that, it's kind of, it's kind of remarkable, you know, it, it, it really does make you feel like you're connected to the human race a little bit. So I really do love doing shows like this for that reason, because of that particular connection that you have with those people. Well, that takes us into story number two, because for the longest time, you were trying to be someone other than yourself, you, you know, but yet you started to acknowledge this part of you, this unique self that you had. And that's when you actually started to not only work more, but you started to begin to love to work. Yeah. And you give the example, I love this, you give the example of wanting to be the next Sean Penn. Oh, God, yes. Well, why him specifically? What was inspiring about him? Well, I think Sean Penn and I are about the same age for openers. And so he, at the time that I was in acting school, he had, was just hitting it. Like he was just becoming a big deal. And he was the man, like everybody loved Sean Penn. And, uh, and he was just, you know, he was, he came out of the gate and he was so remarkable and he was this kind of tortured, dark kind of person, you know, and that was his persona. He, he was, it was very kind of James Dean-ish, you know, for my generation. And so everybody loved him. And I, that was exactly who I, because that was my idea of like great acting was to be this dark, you know, disturbed kind of dangerous kind of person. And, uh, and so I, I really set my sail to become him <laughs> and, um, and I tried so hard to kind of develop that persona and, and I wore kind of like any dumpy clothes and beat up boots. And, oh, so, you know, oh, so you took it as like almost imitating him. I did. I was, you know, the person who just only cared about dramatic things. <laughs> I cared about dark, dramatic things, but I didn't care for anything else. I was serious. I was serious about this. So I'm not Sean Penn. I'm a long way from Sean Penn. Uh, my personality doesn't in any way, you know, uh, mirror his personality. I'm kind of talkative and I'm kind of funny and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm much more animated than Sean Penn, but I was kind of trying to play him. And my first professional gig, the one I was just talking about, was kind of a Sean Penn role. When, we, when I started doing it, it was a miserable experience because I felt like a total fraud because there was really not much of me being utilized in that, that performance. It was me trying to imitate this other actor who I was not. Was this feeling just something that you felt like, oh, this doesn't feel right? Or did the performance also suffer because of it? Um, I believe that it did. It, there's another young actor in the show who's my age now, but at the time we were young, uh, a guy named Evan Handler, who is, you know, works a lot and was on, he's in Sex and the City and, and done a zillion things. 
he was in it and I trusted him. And I said one night, uh, I think I suck in this show. <laughs> and, and he said, he's very diplomatic. And he said, I don't think you suck, but you could relax a little maybe. And it was good advice. And I took it and things improved after that for sure. But what happened next is really the the real story there because I, I got cast in something else that was kind of Sean Pennish, but not exactly, you know? And that role, I was rehearsing it, uh, it and I was trying to learn lines at home and get ready for it, for the rehearsal. I kind of hit on something that struck me as a little funny, you know, that there was this guy's situation that he, he really had no cards to play. You know, he was really powerless in this situation, but he was kind of acting like he did you know, acting like he had, you know, some control over what was going to happen. And then he had some bargaining chips. And there was something about that that struck me really funny. Like he was really not smart. You know, he just wasn't smart enough to know what the situation was. And I took it to rehearsal and everybody started to laugh. And it was not a funny play, by the way, but they started to laugh. And I wound up using myself, my own doubts, my own insecurities, my own feeling a bit lost, you know, in the in the new world of being a professional actor, and and I just and I I just used my humor in it, and it wound up being like tremendously successful for me, and I got a lot of attention for it. And then the thing after that was I got cast in this comedy, this like balls to the wall, really fast moving kind of Christopher Durang ish kind of comedy, and it, there were only two of us in it. And it was at the Manhattan Punchline. This is this is ancient history, but anyway, that was a very hot theater at the time. It was this real kind of tour de force for the two of us because we were playing like multiple things and we were shifting. It was great. And the New York Times came and reviewed it, and it was the first time that my name was in the New York Times. And up until that time, I had not had an agent. And the day after that review, I had an agent. There you go. Yeah. And I remember when we were doing it, I thought, this is so easy. Like, this is like, this is so, it's like, just, just be funny. Like the same way you're funny at home and you make your roommate laugh, just be funny on the stage, you know, just be funny. And and you think it's because you tapped into a way to really be yourself and not have to work at it? I was using that, which I was good at, which I never thought that it had any value to just be this kind of goofy, desperate, panicked person, <laughs> which is not dissimilar to who I am in real life. I didn't think there was any value in that. That didn't, that wasn't acting. Acting was dark and sinister and broken and horrible, you know? And I discovered suddenly, by the way, that not everybody can be funny. I didn't know that. I sort of, I thought it was this cheap party trick when in fact, there's, there's a lot of skill in being funny. And I fortunately come from a very funny family. As troubled as they are, they're quite funny. And so I already had that in my back pocket going in, but I had no idea it was of value. I really didn't. And suddenly I sort of thought, oh, this, I'm not going to be the next Sean Penn. I'm going to be the next David Dean Botrell because that's who I am. And suddenly everything got so much better and so much easier for me. And I began to work and I began to actually have ease in it. I didn't come into a rehearsal feeling like, oh, they're going to find me out or, oh, I suck. Or how am I going to say this line to convince them that I know what I'm doing? It didn't, all that terror was kind of gone from it. It became a very pleasant, fun, interesting thing to do. And I assume that that translate, you know, because once you found that in performance, then the subsequent auditions, you were then also bringing yourself. So you knew when they cast you, they wanted you, they wanted what you specifically had to bring. So yeah, so when you get to the rehearsal room, you don't feel like you need to keep up the act, so to speak. No, 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 no. I've, I've been very blessed and I, and this started when I was a young guy, 
and it's kind of become something that continues to work out often. I'll say, I'll say often, not every time, obviously, but more than once I'll be cast. And then someone in the producer or whatever will say to me, you were the only person that did that. You were the only person who took that role and sort of did this thing with it. You made it into something that fit you like a glove, you know? You just, you just tailored the material to yourself. And so consequently, the audition was kind of, you know, we, we thought, wow, that's the only person who can do that thing that just happened right there. We should hire him. And so that's now something that I, that I shoot for in every audition is I think if I'm going to make this work, I got to make it work for me first. I can't put on a piece of clothing and then fit. I got to tailor this to me, to my, how, what my skills are as an actor. And then they may buy it. They may not. But if they do, there's no surprises. They know what they're getting. And I know what I'm going to do on set. I know that I'll be doing what I did at the audition. And that's a lovely feeling. There's been a lot of great stuff that I've gotten to do because I didn't exactly follow the directions. Obviously, as you find that freedom, I can only imagine how much easier auditions and then performance gets. But then I'm only guessing that maybe at some point you kind of know the shtick. You know, all right, this is what I do. And it can kind of become then a caricature of yourself. Does that ever happen where you have to kind of rein yourself back in and be like, okay, get back to real, get back to who I really am? I'm going to say so far, so good. <laughs> so far, so good because I'm I'm very blessed that I get hired for both comedic things and things that are very much not comedic. And that's largely due to a wonderful agent that I had in Los Angeles who really, I sort of said, I don't want to get stuck in one groove. I don't want to be a, a boutique item that just comes off the shelf once a year. I don't want, I don't want to be the new Paul Lind, if you remember Paul Lind. Um, I, I want to do other things and I do want to be able to be believable in drama as well as comedy. And so I, fortunately for that, because of that, I do audition for kind of a wide range of things. It isn't like any one thing. So I think that has saved me a bit from, uh, from doing the same shtick over and over again. Uh, <laughs> this is kind of an unfortunate story, I guess, but I, I did an audition for a show one time and the material was not funny. Like it was just, it was very boring, frankly. And I found a way and I thought, well, I'm never going to book this job. It's like, I think I'd hire any fucking body to do this job. And uh, so I'm going to just show the casting director that I can play these quirky characters and they can call me for something else later on. I'm not going to even try to get this job, but I just found a way to make him this kind of nerve, like seriously nervous, kind of <laughs> terrified person. And they laughed. They like laughed at the whole audition. They hired me. Uh, I went to the first read through with the, you know, the cast and everybody, I, I did the same thing. Everybody was laughing. Oh my God. Everybody was so happy. You know, producer called me and said, that's the best audition I've ever seen. It was like, it was amazing. And I thought, oh, great. This is going to be great. And then I got to set and I did like the first take and the director said, okay, let's cut all of that. I was like, all of that. And let's just take all those elements. Let's take all that out. And I thought, what? Interesting. You know, I don't have any proof, but I'm going to tell you what my theory is, which I suspect is on the nose, um, is that one of the stars did not like that I was getting all those laughs at the table read. That's the only explanation for what happened. Egos. We are a frail people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> We're very fragile sometimes. Yeah. The producer had called me and said, that's the best audition. Like, you know, everybody was on board. It, it was successful in the audition. It was successful in the read-through. And then suddenly on the set to go, we're taking all that out, was um, quite a surprise. 
uh, and I got through it, but it wasn't much fun. You know, I just realized, okay, you know, pull it, they're pulling rank. Here we go. Right. Just let the lines be there and don't add anything. To I'm going to get yeah. paid either way. <laughs> That's true. It's not, it's not going to be fun, but I'm going to get paid and then we'll get out of here and onto the next one. Well, I think you hit upon one of the biggest lessons that we as artists can find, and that is to learn what we can and what we can't control. Yes. For the most part in television, it's rare. Like whatever they saw in the audition is what they want you to do. Usually there is not much of an adjustment on that. But I know that when I was doing Boston Legal, that was such an incredible, unexpected thing because I came in as a, as a one scene guest star and David Kelly liked me and it became this huge arc on the show. And so he kept developing that character and like it, it went from just being comedic into being very complex. And so each week they were fielding me new balls, you know, like new things were being thrown at me that I was like, holy shit. You know, now we're now this element has been introduced into this character. And so that particular job was one where I had to be on it, on it, on it every week, because I think David Kelly really loved writing for that character and wanted to create something new and more interesting and more interesting, you know, in his behavior every time. So that was fascinating and uh, amazing to do. And then I've also had the experience in auditions, which I learned the hard way, which is if you're in an audition and you are given an adjustment it pays to listen carefully to what's being said to you. Usually, uh, it means that you have missed the boat. <laughs> yes. Uh, and in most cases, now again, it depends on what's being said to you. But in most cases, you need to abandon everything that you just did. Like now it's time to jump off the cliff and just treat this as an improvisational exercise and let go of all of that stuff that you had planned before. Let it all go. Because if you, because I can tell you, I've seen it as a director, I've seen it where you give somebody an an adjustment and they're like nodding and they're looking at you and they like, okay, okay. And then they do the exact same audition again. I've been there. I've done that. Like phrase by phrase, line reading by line reading. It's the same thing. And so I, I learned that if they say we're going a different direction, I bet in everything like all of it. It's a whole new thing. And I'm, I'm not going to hang on to anything. And what I found from that is, you know, sometimes I've gotten a job, and, but mostly what I have done is I've come off well in the room. Meaning I demonstrated, first of all, that I'm directable. Second, that I'm creative. I don't have to do it exactly the same way that I did the last time. And that, you know, I've got guts, you know? So when I walk out of there, I may not get that job, but the casting director will bring me back but when I, when, if I do it exactly the same way, it looks like I'm limited in some way. Like I can't really break out of it. Which is so interesting because you, you brought up the fact that usually how you audition for it, they cast you. That's, that's what they want to see in set. Yeah. I just had an example of this. I was auditioned for a commercial, was called back. So I, I revisited the script and remembered what I did for the first audition and brought that same thing to the callback. Right. Almost everything that I did, the director was like, nope try the note, do the note, try. And it was very difficult for me to just, as you say, abandon what I had done before and try it completely new. I think I eventually got there on some, I I didn't end up booking it, but yeah, it can be very tough to let go sometimes. When when I teach, you know, and I I sometimes teach audition workshops and, um, and when I do, I, I talk about this subject and I say, (laughs) when they give you that adjustment, there's something they're telling you. And what they're telling you is, 
if you do it the way you just did it, you will not get this job. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so that's what you need to take away is like, oh, okay. I'm not going to do anything I did before. I'm going to do something new. The other thing is if they just say, oh, I like what you did, but can you add this to it? Just make sure that they see that thing nice and clear, nice and clear and steady. And even if you overdo it a little bit, that's a lot better than underdoing it. Right, right. Subtlety is not the name of the game when it comes to that. As a director, you can always dial somebody down. But what you do not want to do is you don't want to be in a situation where you're trying to pry it out of someone. That is not worth your time. Uh, it, you need to move on to another actor who's, who's, who just happens to be ready to move, to take that leap. It's just business. Right, right. Yeah, it is both a craft and art, but it's also a, a very technical thing to be able to make that adjustment on the spot. Yeah, but it's, it's also a job skill. And it's, it's not an unreasonable request. Mm -hmm. You know, a few years ago, I had an actor who wanted to do something. Like, he was a good actor, too, but he got married to this really forced thing he wanted to do. It was really, it was, you know, bad. And I, I had to sort of, I had to negotiate him out of it because he wasn't doing the scene any favors. And he certainly wasn't doing himself any favors. But he was, you know, he, I kept thinking, you're smart. You should know better than to, to do this. But he, in the moment, he did it. You know, and I had to kind of like negotiate and say, okay, you can do a little bit of it right here. Like in this part, why don't you do it right there? But then the rest of it, can we just do it this way? But it was a, it was a bit of a dance to get in there. So I guess we can all make a mistake, but it is collaborative and collaboration means changing. You know, you got to change what you're doing and be okay with it. You do need to make sure it's truthful. You got to make sure it works for you and all that. But there are too many people who are not stuck in the mud. It's a job skill. You know, and it's a good one. If you want to work, it's a good one to have. While it is certainly important to be ready to adjust our auditions to the director's notes and feedback, it is arguably even more important the work we do to prepare for the audition itself. And in this week's bonus episode, David shares not only the persistence of a casting director who wanted to bring him in for Boston Legal, but also his own unique take on that character and the freedom he felt to bring that into the audition room. Now, bonus episodes like these are only available to monthly supporters of Why I'll Never Make It. So if you'd like to help this podcast as well, then please consider a one-time donation, or if you'd like access to the bonus episodes like Audition Stories, then consider a monthly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com or just click on the link in the show notes. Speaking of teaching, that leads us into the third one, where you decided to write a book and, and was about, you know, helping us actors, about, about having a career in show business, making it and, and maintaining ourselves as an actor, yeah. both on the business side as well as artistic side. And, and you were actually nervous about being unqualified to write such a book. Oh my God, yes. Now, <laughs> with your vast experiences and successes in the business, why did you feel unqualified to share what you'd learned? Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the book actually came about because of a review that I got uh, when I did my show in Los Angeles. The Los Angeles Times, God bless them, came and reviewed the show and they gave it a very nice review. 
But when they were describing me to their readers, uh, they said, you know, David E. Botrell, a writer, comedian, perched on the edge of success. And I, I, although the rest of the review I liked very much, I was so infuriated by that reference. Because I thought, you know, I've been in the entertainment industry for years, making my living in this industry, and I'm just on the edge of success. And I thought, this, this is like the saddest thing is, I just saw it again the other day, somebody was referred to, uh, you know, some actor was like, oh, you know, finally they found success, which, which means they were, became famous, you know. And, and I just thought that's so unfair. And it's so, uh, it, you know, that's really, very few people get famous. But there are plenty of people who make a living and make a life and do this with their, you know, and successfully. And so I thought we need to kind of redefine the word success. And I don't, you know, and I looked at some of the books that were out there on how to kind of have a career in show business. And I didn't, and no offense to anybody, but I just didn't enjoy reading them. I didn't find them fun to read. I didn't find them exciting to read. I found them very dry. I kind of wondered what the person's qualifications were to write this book. Um, and I thought, well, I've been at this for a while, so I guess that makes me qualified. But I did have my doubts. I, I, every, when I even after I sold the book and I was writing it, I would sit there and go, "Who the hell are you to give advice?" You know, I mean, I make a living, but I'm not like you know, I'm not like super wealthy. And I thought, you know what? I'm me. I've been doing it. You know, and so that's what qualifies me to do it. I have done it, and I'm not claiming that this is a book about how to be a star. I'm talking about this is a way to learn how to make a living doing it, how to make that transition from the acting class into the actual marketplace a little bit and to so, and also to keep yourself intact as an artist, to stay interested and to stay happy in the business. Um, it has, there are some not nice parts about the business. They don't need to be overstated and overstated. Most of the people I know find a way around that. Their desire to do something good, to do something truthful, to do something fun is greater than the hoops you have to jump through sometimes or the things you have to put up with sometimes. I've, I've had mostly very positive experiences, you know, and I've had a few horrible ones, uh, which are great stories, you know, <laughs> and, and I look back on them now, the people who were generating all that noise at the time, I, I now look back at them and I feel kind of bad for them, you know, that they were so angry or, you know, overworked or insecure or whatever, that they felt like they had to do what they did. So, uh, one of the things also that's in this book is they're off-ramps. You don't have to do this with your life. You can take these wonderful talents you have and you can apply them to other things. You know, you could become other things. Which is certainly not what a lot of teachers or, or other people will tell you, you know, because they want you to stay in the class or they want you to keep taking the course. Yeah. So, so they don't tell you about these off-ramps of doing something else with your life. You know, I'm sure that 90% of the directors that I work with started out as actors, you know? And, and many producers I know, many writers I know, started out in, in somebody's acting class. And then they found, or, or costumers or what, I mean, like there's a lot of stuff. Or you can still be an artist in your spare time. If you want to go have a regular life and raise a family and buy a house and do all that cool stuff, you can do that. And there's wonderful places to practice your art. You can go be an actor at the community theater and be an amazing actor. If you want to have that experience. You don't have to make your living doing this to still be an artist. And to still do it well, you don't have to. Your love for it is your love for it, and you will find the time to do it, or you'll find some hybrid version of it. It doesn't, and you don't have to live in New York or Los Angeles. You can live in, you can be an actor in Atlanta now. 
an actor in you know New Mexico or Chicago. There are places to do it. If you don't want to like wrestle with people to be to get a pilot audition or something, and you'd rather just be in it for the fun of it, you can do that, and you can still make some money doing it as well. And it's interesting that attitude is almost the exact opposite of the attitude that you grew up with. Rather than don't stretch too far, don't reach for something. It's the converse. Once you're in this business, a lot of people will say, well, when's your next big thing? When are you actually going to make it? When, you know, oh, you, oh, you hit that big show. Now you're finally good. Now what else are you going to do? You know, expecting and pushing to want to be the next big thing. And, and I, I remember I worked with this one woman whenever I was doing summer stock and community theater in Birmingham where I grew up. And my goodness, her name was Christy. And she was just, she was beautiful to look at. She was a wonderful dancer. Her voice was just outstanding. And I loved being in shows with her. And I was like, why aren't you in New York? Why aren't you doing something else? You know, I had all these questions like, why aren't you so much bigger? That was my thought. Cause I, that's what I wanted to do. I was going to go to New York or, or be something better and bigger. But for her, she wanted to be married. She wanted to be stay in Birmingham. She wanted to have life, her friends. Her purposes, her goals were well-rounded enough to include acting with it, but not be the only goal. I, I can only imagine that that was maybe a difficult decision for her, but once she found it, was such a peaceful decision to make. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's, you know, part of the decision to stay in the business and this is just my two cents, and I'm very clear about that in the book. There are many opinions on these on these subjects. In my opinion, uh, if you're talking about pursuing it professionally, one of the things you have to look at is how does the business respond to you? Like, do you feel like it is opening up? Like that there is some place for you that's appearing in the world of you know auditions for actual shows, or or that your involvement in and the working community of actors is becoming more welcoming. Like people acknowledge you, people acknowledge your work. Is that happening? Because if it isn't, you need to pay attention to that because your, your career can't be based on the desire to do something. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's got to be based on entry. Like is the, is the industry giving you some entry into it? The people who get entry, you know, people for whom the door opens a little bit, there's a reason. Because they're they have skill, they you know they're talented for sure, but they also have kind of honed that skill, and they kind of have made it their business to understand that it's not acting class anymore. It, they're looking for people who are proactive, who are um, ready to make some decisions before they walk in the door. They they're looking for collaborators, and they're not going to hire somebody and say, hmm, maybe. Maybe if I worked with them really hard for several days, they might get it. They're not looking for that. Yeah, no director wants that. Yeah. They don't have to do that. There are people who are ready to work. And I think that that's what happens is you start to go from being a student of acting to being somebody who actually sort of gets a couple of things, which is to you've got to bring something to the party. You can't show up empty-handed. And you can't, and you can't be scared to collaborate and change and be part of whatever the, this thing is. And like I said... If the industry starts to respond to you, you have every reason to hang in and fight hard if you want to get in. But if it's not responding to you at all, then maybe there's something else that you can do creatively and have a wonderful life and be a wonderful artist and not necessarily have to be rejected all the time by people who have a, a certain contract that's 
belongs to a certain corporation or belongs to a certain union. And I, you know, art is art, you know? So I just try to keep everything framed as positively as I can. And I tell a lot of hilariously funny stories in this book as well, which makes the medicine go down a little bit better, I think. And also about how to take care of yourself in the industry, because you've got to weed the garden all the time. And the biggest and most awful thing that happens to people is comparison. Oh, ab absolutely. I mean, that is one of the deadliest games, I think, when it comes to being an actor. It, you know, because we certainly want to push ourselves and to and to take failure and, and go to the next step, keep pushing. Yeah. And it certainly can be easy to compare ourselves, our failures against someone else's success, and that can be discouraging. But I think that one of the most crippling parts of comparison is when we criticize where we are versus where we should be, where it's our own self. That's the hardest part. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's that comparison thing. Um, it's almost invisible sometimes in our psyche. It, it can just kind of get wedged in there. And I've literally seen it cost people years of their career where they were just sort of stuck in this, why them? Why not me? How can I be them? And why, why aren't I getting that? You know, and this person's that where, and this person won this award. And oh my God, it, it can, it's endless. There's always somebody new. There's somebody new coming in every damn day, you know? And it, it's hard to step away from all that. I get it. I understand where it comes from, but it's kind of imperative. Um, I will tell you something that um, uh, years ago, as like I said, I, I worked as a professional writer quite a bit in Los Angeles. And I was, I went to a reading by this uh, Larry Gelbart, who was this you know iconic writer who wrote MASH and many other amazing things. At 82, he had a development deal at HBO. Unheard of, right? And I was part of this group of people that got invited to this kind of private reading to hear his latest project being read. And it was very funny and very him and very smart, like it always was. And they sadly opened it up to questions from the floor for Mr. Gelbart. And I, I always loathe that part of any presentation like that because someone's always going to ask some stupid ass question that's going to make me want to crawl under my chair. <laughs> and somebody did. Somebody got up and said, oh, Mr. Gelbart, I love you and I love everything you've ever written and you're just the best. And could you just briefly somehow sum it all up? And what's the secret to success in show business? Which is like the most stupid question ever, you know? Right, yeah. And Larry Gelbart at age 82 said, I think that the key to success in show business is the ability to grow a new hymen every two years. <laughs> and wow. That's, that's a, a picture. Obviously, cool. there was a huge laugh. Yeah. But I want to tell you, I remember when I was driving home that night, I was still laughing about that. And I thought that is the most brilliant thing I have ever heard because he's right. You cannot take your disappointments into your next job or into the next year of your career or your resentments or whatever the hell you have got, you, whatever's in front of you, you've got to come at it with a kind of a, a virgin like faith that this is the best thing that ever could have happened. And I'm going to, it's all going to be so great. And like, you have to like rid yourself of all of that previous, you know, scar tissue you might have and come into it with a whole heart. And it's, it's brilliant advice. And you do need to weed the garden so that you can do that, you know, so that you don't come in and, and you think, oh, what's this? And, oh, here we go again. And, oh, now I'm not, I'm not being paid enough. And like, whatever all the complaints are that you can rack up pretty quickly on a project.
but uh, it it was great advice, and I echo it. Listen, it's a great pleasure to to work. Do you know what I mean? It really is. I, I it's hard to get a job, so when you get a job, you should enjoy it. You should relish it to the best of your ability, and that requires keeping an eye on your attitude. Yeah, you mentioned that your book is distinguishing between wanting to be a star versus wanting to have a career. Now, what do you think is that difference choosing one path versus the other? You don't choose it. It chooses you. I know several people who are very big stars, and I can tell you that to some extent, they were stars before they were stars. You know, I can I can think of a couple of different instances where I met this person and I thought, wow, they put off such a charge, you know? They 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 have this electricity about them and they and they're kind of fearless and all that. And you liked looking at them and you liked listening to them, and there was just this charm that they had. And so it wasn't particularly surprising that they became a star, you know. You can't really just go in a store and buy that for yourself. It, it, you know, people come become stars for different reasons. Also, some people because they're extraordinarily good, or because they're sexy, or because they're beautiful, or because they're hilarious. It can be many different things. But it, I don't. I wouldn't have any idea how to tell somebody to chart a course for stardom. Although people try it all the time, I think it's a gambling business. You know, and if you like to gamble, this is a good business for you. But if you don't like to gamble, if you want a guarantee of things, this is probably not a great business for you to be in. Honestly, what I tell my students is really, honestly, the only insurance policy that any of us have in this industry is to be good at what we do. And to be good at what we do means we have to kind of keep our lane clear. You've got to come at it every time with some interest, with some genuine joy in this opportunity to work with new artists on a new piece of material and find it and solve all the problems and you know, take the puzzle pieces and assemble them into something that's going to be great, you know, and that has, you, you got to find that and that will keep you alive. It will keep you growing as an artist and deepening your work and learning new tricks. You know, many, many people, you know, who were famous for one thing at one stage of their career later on, they become famous for something else. You know, maybe they were Mr. or Miss Sexy and now they're like the funny grandma, you know, or grandpa, and nobody ever saw that coming, but they kept their eyes and ears open and they didn't get rusty and they didn't get stuck in the past. And they had a career. They had an interesting career as a result. It sounds like to have this career is to, again, <laughs> I'm still stuck on that idea of being a virgin constantly. <laughs> because for whatever reason, our, our body types, our ages, we're constantly changing. Even who we are as a person, what we wanted at 20 is not what we're going to want at 40 and things change. And so that virginal attitude of I'm coming at it anew, I'm coming at it waiting for the next relationship, the next show to do, the next script, the next role to be a part of. Yeah, yeah. I also, this is another thing I say, which is, you know, each of us, about every five years, you're a new person. You really are. And that's also true for you as an artist. And you also need to keep an eye on that and start to adjust accordingly to the different kinds of roles that you're going to be doing now. I am on the fast track to playing grandpa and the judge. <laughs> That's kind of what's coming. It's on the horizon. I can see it. And I don't care. I'm not worried about it. I have all these other things that I have created for myself as an artist that keep me really interested in the business, including the writing part and the directing part and the teaching part. It's It'll be fine. I'm going to be just fine. I've had a great time. And I'll continue if I can, if I have anything to say about it, which frankly I do, my attitude has a lot to do with how things go. I'll be happy doing that. I'll be, I'll have a blast playing the judge. 
thank you so much for joining David and me today. But remember, the conversation continues not only with that audition story bonus episode, but also with the final five questions on the Win Me blog. You'll find a link to the blog in the show notes, as well as more information about how you can see his one-man show or get your hands on his book called Working Actor. This week's listener feedback comes from Zach Zadek, who recently started following the podcast on Instagram and said, It's a wonderful show. Congrats for putting it together. (laughs) Well, this message is the epitome of short and sweet, but it is still so appreciated, especially from such a prolific composer and artist as yourself. So thank you. Well, you too can follow this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at WinMePodcast. Why I'll Never Make It is a WinMe Media production and is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Background music in this episode is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. I am your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.